Hello, today is Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. If you listen to episode number one of the We Be Imagining podcast at the intersection of race, tech, surveillance, and COVID-19, you will know that the interview that you're about to hear was recorded a couple of weeks ago, in fact, on March 22nd. But I'm really excited for you to hear from Ali Winston, independent journalist focusing on surveillance, criminal justice, and civil liberty. He's written for publications such as the New York Times, ProPublica, um, and I'm really excited for you to hear his feedback. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you and kind of learning about your experience from the lens of policing and surveillance in the last few weeks of the COVID-19 response. Um, most recently, the declaration of by Cuomo of a lockdown. Um, but given the moment, could we just back up for a second? And could you share a little bit about when you personally became aware of the gravity of the situation and kind of what it means or looks like for you to stay at home right now? Yeah, so I am um, a bit of a news hound just by by professional necessity. And I'd been reading about the outbreak in China basically since it hit the news in December and then the growing severity of it. Um, I have quite a lot of family in Europe and started paying attention when the outbreak happened in Italy where I have a couple of relatives. Um, and then... I was in the UK for work in the middle of February and reading the international press, you got a different perspective on the severity of the lockdown, the struggles of governments in Korea, in South Korea, in China, in Japan to tamp this down and the methods and procedures they were undertaking to try and get a handle on this pandemic. And, um, you know, at some point, um, flying back from the UK, um, maybe I want to say about five or three days after that, I came down sick with basically what I felt was the flu. Um, and looking back on it now, it may have been this, it may not have been, but I, I, you know, I did all the things that I normally do and stay at home for quite some time. But that was around the 21st of February, 20th of February, when things started, it became apparent that this was spreading really like wildfire. Um, and then, unfortunately, you know, at the end of February, I stocked up on, on supplies a little bit and started limiting my movements around New York City, um, avoiding the train. And then by, I think, March 5th, it became apparent to me that this was this was going to hit and it was going to hit like a tidal wave. So, um, you know, I've been trying to impress on people that I know that this is really going to, and my friends and my family here, that this is going to be severe. And unfortunately... Um, you know, we're getting to the point now where we're going to have essentially an equivalent of California's shelter in place order in New York City by tonight. Um, it's not a full lockdown. The penalty, the it appears from the declaration so far that the um, shelter in place order is not enforceable by misdemeanor like it is in California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in parts of the Bay Area when police out there have said we're not going to enforce it. But the NYPD is a different beast. They have said that they are unwilling to decrease the number of arrests they're affecting, even though uh, members of service are contracting the uh, the coronavirus. And um, there is currently an outbreak in Rikers, on Rikers Island, amongst staff and inmates. So it's really, you know, New York City enforcing this, uh, this shutdown. It's going to be uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how it pans out. Yeah, and de Blasio, you know, absolutely said uh, NYPD will be a part of the enforcement. 
Right. The, the problem with de Blasio is that de Blasio bends over backwards for the police. And this is going to be, I mean, to be honest with you and just speaking as a New Yorker, um, he's been an utter failure throughout this entire thing. Um, his refusal to close schools, his refusal to close libraries, threatening to cut their funding if they didn't stay open. Um, his just the his unwilling his, him going to the gym during the midst of this uh, the midst of this crisis, basically on the last day possible, urging people to go out to their bar on the last day that they could. To I think last weekend or two weekends ago is just the height of irresponsibility. Um, I think that whatever sort of enforcement from this is going to come from the governor. And also kind of mind-boggling. I mean, the thing with the public schools staying open even as SUNY and CUNY closed and all the major universities. Well, they closed late. SUNY and CUNY closed very late. Um, Columbia, NYU, Fordham, they were all shut down long before CUNY and SUNY where I have friends that attend um, that attend graduate school at the SUNY University of New York. And they were begging their administrators to shut down. But yeah, the public schools... Um, I understand that there's a lot of services that must be provided for, and it's a last-ditch resort. But um, you know, this is really this is un, this, the only situation we've ever had like this before in modern history is the 1918 Spanish uh, flu epidemic. Yeah, and absolutely. It, it was just kind of. I mean, as a New Yorker <laughs> as well, you know, yeah. this administration hasn't been comp- very compassionate to people who are unhoused and homeless in the city and caring about food security, scarcity issues in the past. So I'm no. just having a hard time buying that that was the reason that we had to be a national or a global outlier in closing the public schools and waiting until what felt like the last possible moment. So I'm just kind of puzzled by that. Yeah, it's there are all sorts of considerations that come into it, but... um I would say that, you know, from having reported on the city for quite some time, um, grown up here, um, seen many different mayors, there are whole aspects of city government that are going, um, that have gone unfulfilled or have been, you know, just neglected or put aside. The parks department is a huge one. Um, sanitation, the, for instance, the absolute neglect of the, um, food scraps program for Mm -hmm. his entire term has been an issue. And just seeing these little things break down, you know, when they, you get, they, those little things get neglected and you have somebody who basically spends less time in office now than he, less time at work now than he did, I want to say, during his first year. Um, when it comes to something as grave and as serious and as all-consuming as a pandemic, there's no chance he's going to catch up. Um, duly noted. And could you, could you speak a little bit about, on one hand, everybody was clamoring for the schools to close, for non-essential businesses to close in response to the pandemic, but what does this mm-hmm. mean in terms of surveillance and policing? So the way that this, um, this pandemic is now playing out, um, will play out in the United States. It's really important to look at what's happened overseas first in the past couple months um, to get an idea about how governments have reacted to the crisis um, and how law enforcement agencies and different components of government have implemented um, methods of tracking and surveillance to try and tamp down a population movement and um, and isolate cases of the virus. So in countries like, um, in South Korea, in China, um, I mean, China, as we know, has a very tight apparatus of, um, of surveillance. There's network, um, closed circuit television cameras everywhere. 
uh, they use facial recognition. The CCTV, um, yeah, South Korea as well. Um, they have extensive ability to track individuals across um, cell phone networks. And um, in South Korea, I mean, not every area of China has the same uh, movement restriction as uh, Xinjiang, as the, the Uyghur province in the West, um, where, you know, you, your movements are highly prescribed by, by the government. But in some areas of China, they have put into place checkpoints that have tracked people's movements via their cell phone data, um, their, via their, um, their pings on a camera equipped with facial recognition, and um, done that to kind of keep people in place. In South Korea, the government has utilized cell phone data to track um, the movements of individuals and their purchases, if they use their phone for a purchase or, you know, are in a grocery store or anything like that and tried to, and done that in an epidemiological sense to work back and try and trace out their contacts, um, to potentially isolate the source of, you know, any potential viral infections or contacts that people may have had. So those are two examples. And, you know, the Times, the New York Times reported last week that Israel is now looking at utilizing a previously undisclosed um, dragnet database of cell phone um, of cell phone contacts and metadata to um, do to take a similar approach to South Korea in terms of tackling their virus. So this is a moment where you start to see considerations about privacy. Um, take a back seat at the best and get thrown out the window of the car at the worst um, in face of trying to tamp down on um, you know, tamp down this pandemic. And you're starting to see similar similar elements of it in California as well. Um, the Financial Times reported on Friday that the police department in Chula Vista, which has been deploying drones to 911 calls ahead of officers for uh, some time over the past you know nine months year. Now they are rigging them up with speakers and night vision cameras, and they're going to use them to try and disperse individuals who they see congregating in groups. Um, you've seen similar efforts in Nice in France, where um, the police have been breaking up uh, groups of uh, large gatherings of people. Nice has had a particular problem along their um, their beachfront um, promenade, the um, Place des Anglais. Um, so there's you're, now we're seeing these technologies that we were kind of debating beforehand, um, before the pandemic. There was a lot of, there was a big pushback in terms of civilian control, civilian oversight of law enforcement, um, regulation of the acquisition of such tools like drones, like um, facial recognition. Now there's kind of a movement in the converse direction, um, or at least what, what you know, could be the start of a movement in the commerce direction. It's hard to see the future, but this is, um, it's ominous, I would say. It's ominous and also, I mean, there's already been like a lot of work around facial recognition and how it builds on physiognomy and uh, kind of pseudoscientific phrenology you know, right. from the 1930s. And some of the stuff, I think yeah, I was trying to look for the link right now, but I saw in South Korea, they were using thermal imaging to detect the virus and to track That's right. And there's yeah, a lot of things that are just, that don't make, you know, they're just also not scientific sense, regardless of their an invasion of people's privacy. Is there anything that you see right now that are operating as guardrails during this time when people are so afraid and they might be more welcoming of invasions of their privacy than usual? Um, I mean, that's the difficult thing is that we're so, this entire situation is so new and so fresh 
that the rollout is still happening. I mean, the unit, the U.S. is so far behind um, the rest of the world in terms of testing, um, in terms of just prepping whatsoever. Our, we're, we're, we're dealing with the, the difficulty of adding hospital beds right now, um, of piecing together gowns and masks for uh, medical professionals from just random found parts or coffee filters at some point because we don't have the sufficient supplies or private individuals are hoarding them. Um, mm. So I, I think it's a little bit too early to see, you know, how this, um, how this transformation is starting to take effect. But um, the, for the localities that do have restrictions in place on facial recognition, on, um, on, uh, you know, police purchase and um, use of surveillance technology. Most of them are on the West Coast. It's going to be a really trying time, and we'll see how those policies get stretched. But unfortunately, that's they're only in place in, in certain localities. Um, there's just this kind of patchwork of laws, as there as is the case in American society, that you know knits together our approach to all this. I'm really interested in hearing how. Um, these methods of control and surveillance and monitoring are working in places like Germany, which have very strict regulations over um, which data can be gathered and uh, disseminated and used by the government. Um, the European Union obviously has the uh, general data privacy regulation, the GDPR, which covers every um, country in the EU. But that being said, um, mm -hmm. I think that that is a very neglected um point right now because there's been so much emphasis on just stemming the spread of the of the virus and you know Spain, Italy, France, Germany, um, Holland, Switzerland, they're all effectively on lockdown. So, you know, the the normal rules of of the game are, are out the window right now. Yeah, the climate that the climate that brought us GDPR is very different than the climate right now. And, yes. And you've written about how the NYPD amassed like an array of technical capabilities in the wake of 9-11. Yes. Could yes. you, for people who are not familiar with what that looks like, could you kind of paint a picture of kind of pre-COVID-19, what was their capacity for surveillance sure. in New York City? So then New York Police Department, um, New York City Police Department has a pretty wide network, tens of thousands of linked video cameras that um, are spread throughout the city. Most of them are in quote unquote high crime areas. Um, or the core of Manhattan, the business district in Midtown and Lower Manhattan. Um, we have a situation where, you know, the department has used, to our knowledge, they've used um, analytics such as facial recognition, um, not in real time, they claim. Um, after the fact, they'll take a still image and run someone's face through a... Uh, through their databases and see whether there's a match or no match on a person of interest. Um, they've used that in the past. They have linked up these cameras with gunshot detectors um, mm -hmm. to try and find certain locations of gunfire. They also have in their possession um, what's called a stingray um, or a cell site simulator where they can track um, the location and if they have the right software package, the communications of a certain cell phone with um with different devices so they have the ability to track people down by um, by cell phone um communications or location they've also been using um i mean with you know i'm drilling down specifically on um on technologies that they can use 
in this respect. They have drones. They have uh, about two dozen, roughly, um, mm-hmm. small drones, some of which are equipped with thermal imaging. Um, I've seen that in play. So there's the possibility that thermal imaging, you know, if that's ever used or determined to be of use for detecting abnormal body temperature. I don't know if they're accurate enough to do that, but those drones certainly have that cap- that uh, that capacity. We also have um, here these... Um, the department's been using these administrative warrants to obtain um, basically all the department and the local prosecutors, I should mention, have been using um, administrative warrants called geofence warrants or um, to, excuse me, administrative subpoenas to obtain information about a individual's, um, basically their entire account history for Google or Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter to try and track connections, locations, communications. Um, those have received, in some cases, they've you know filed requests for warrants that you know include all Google accounts that um, you know were detected or received data within this particular radius at this point in time. So I actually see the administrative subpoena as a workback that could be used to try and track out contacts, potential contacts of people who have um, contracted COVID or been tested who tested positive, who've been exposed to it. But again, um, these are all hypotheticals. Then there is something else that has come um, to concern, and that's the NYPD's purchase of rapid DNA um, machines, which basically are used to take um, they take one sample of DNA from a crime scene and digest it and um, determine whether it matches um, a certain... Digest? Yeah, it basically, the machine basically swallows the entire sample. It uses the entire sample. It doesn't create... So the way that normal um, DNA analysis machines work is that you put the bit, relative bit of DNA in a... And I'm sketching a rough scientific picture of it, but you put it in a jet... You create a jelly that... um, has a composite of that DNA in it. And then you use part of that jelly to test the DNA to see if it matches a certain profile and you keep the rest of it. You preserve that as evidence for, you know, posterity for future testing. This is how innocence project cases work where you clear individuals who've been convicted of DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. You retest the DNA and you make certain, you know, you double, you basically check your work like mm-hmm. a grade schooler would with math. Um, the rapid DNA machines don't allow that. They, the machine actually ingests the entire sample and destroys it afterwards. So the NYPD have purchased these devices. We don't know how they're using them. Uh, we do know that the department has its own, um, you know, with the Office of the Medical the Chief Medical Examiner. Um, over the years, they created their own DNA database, which is currently the subject of a lot of tension with state legislators because they added children to it. They added people without conviction to it. They basically conducted DNA dragnets. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the question, you know, the current police commissioner, Dermot Shea, um, was previously the chief of detectives and has defended that practice. So there is the possibility that, you know, should, you know, the epidemiological um, marching orders change, that the police department could be used to, um, you know, conduct dragnet sampling of people who are in potential contact with a positive individual and then place them on quarantine. We have no idea. This is all, these are all hypotheticals, and I'm just working back on the technology that the department has. They also have um, a fleet of helicopters and, um, and planes as well that have thermal 
imaging capabilities on them. I mean, and also hypotheticals, but I mean, if, if, if this is any rubric for what we can expect, I think that prisoners and particularly those with substance use issues are kind of been on the front line of the carceral therapeutic state and, yes. you know, have been identified for preemptive incarceration to deal with their substance use issues and have had their access to their medication tied to their criminal justice case. And, you know, there's been a lot of like non-consensual DNA sampling from prisoners as well. Um, and so I'm just thinking, you know, we're so much in, in an acute situation is there's so much that remains uncertain that's left to hypotheticals, but do you see anything for those that are concerned about the erosion of privacy? Is it, what can we do? <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's difficult because this is a situation right now where you are, there's such an obvious, um, germane concern for <clears throat> You know, there's, there are concerns that we really might be in a situation where the, all that stuff goes out the window. The other, the, on the other hand, um, I think it's really incumbent on, um, on citizens and legislators to be very vigilant about what sort of measures are passed to really read any sort of emergency declaration carefully um, to try and push back as much as possible on declarations that could um, expand testing without and expand legal authority um, outside of the realm of medical, uh, you know, to expand these, these tests or any sort of um, any sort of surveillance measure that would not serve an immediate medical purpose. And that would, you know, could seriously impinge on people's liberties in the future that, for example, you know, with tests, with DNA testing, if we're going to do mass testing of individuals with COVID samples, there needs to be retention limits and um, a destruction timetable for that, uh, that data and determine, you know, if this is going to be kept for six months, a year, two years, um, that really needs to be uh, evaluated and weighed in the alongside the medical necessity of it. I'm not a doctor. I don't have any medical expertise, but from a, just the perspective of somebody who deals with privacy issues, that's something that must be of concern. Um, given the state's, uh, inclination in New York city to compile DNA records of people who are not convicted of any crime, who may not even have been arrested for a crime, who may just have sat down for an interview with the police officer and had, you know, a drink of water from a cup, and then that cup is taken and run through a DNA and run through a DNA analysis or a cigarette or anything like that. And who so, are already vulnerable because they might be already represented in the like NYPD gang database or um, database of undocumented mm -hmm. immigrants, et cetera. Yeah. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, but then, you know, we're also talking about very serious impingements on movement. I mean, now today there's talk the governor based on, um, some pretty irresponsible behavior by a lot of people over the past few days um, where it's, you know, it's been spring, it's been nice, but there's been a lot of crowding in the parks. Now they're talking about closing the parks and restricting movements even further, um, which would, I mean, this is a city where people live in apartments that aren't that big. So it really impinges on individuals to be able to go out and exercise and take care of themselves. So that's also another possibility too, that we're going to restrict freedom of movement, which is a constitutional right. Um, but these are extraordinary times. 
Well, also, I'm curious about what you think. On one hand, there's this public sector regulation of uh, surveillance technologies in order to manage the public health situation. But people in their houses are largely maintaining relationships with people outside of their house on social mm -hmm. media and proprietary software. Um, yeah. And kind of, can you share your take on that? What does that mean right now? You know, it, it just, it leverages and deepens the role of social media in our day-to-day -day communications. Um, it's difficult to, you know, now you're going to see more data transmitted online than ever. You're going to see more profiles pop up, um, more of a reliance on these companies. And there, there could be a two-way thing about this. One is the companies could just gather more influence and control and lean on, um, you know, demand certain, you know, certain data from their users, um, say, look, this is our terms of service. We're changing it. This is how we need to enforce it. Or there could be a converse pushback which is that these um, these platforms there's a there would be a, a um, recognition that these platforms are basically like in some sense they're like the internet they're kind of like the public utility even though the internet isn't a public utility and that they should be treated as such they're commons and um, there should be greater regulation and, and greater controls over them that is all um, to be determined but you know there are also there are many companies out there um, unlike Twitter. Unlike Snapchat, unlike Facebook, um, although Facebook kind of overlap, they all overlap with these uh, with these firms. You have um, firms like, you know, I don't think their facial recognition um, engine is anything particular, but Clearview AI, uh, the facial mm -hmm. recognition firm that's gotten a lot of attention because they basically just don't care about a, a private company's terms of service and just hoover up um, images of people willy nilly, just to scrape the internet for them. Um, mm -hmm. And Palantir, um, Peter Thiel's. Um, data mining uh, giant that has gotten a ton, has done a ton of work for um, intelligence ICE. contractors, companies throughout the world. I mean, ICE is, honestly, ICE is a fraction of what they do. The stuff they do mm -hmm. in Israel is incredibly invasive. Mm -hmm. um, like, they basically are used to, you know, they have been used in conjunction with programs to put people in preventative detention for Facebook posts. And, for, and you have no right to challenge that whatsoever over there. Um, mm -hmm. They you know, Palantir was used to build via contacts. Um, they're really good at mapping out contacts and, and um, doing link analysis, or they claim to be. Um, New Orleans built a secretive, um, they used it to basically build a secretive gang database in that city and ran it for six years without public um, oversight. So Palantir is one of these companies that's in discussion with the government currently about um, building out some sort of surveillance tool to respond to the coronavirus. And that is... Um, you know, the movement in that sphere, I feel like, is something that we really need to be careful of because now you're getting to a point where we're in a national security crisis. It is, you know, we're in a national health crisis, and the tools that the intelligence agencies have at their disposal and have been using for the past almost 20 years since the start of, you know, call it what you will, but the post 9 11 wars, the global war on terror, whatever rubric we're using right now, um, they're going to bring these to bear domestically to try and they claim getting a handle on the virus and get a handle on transmissions and so forth. But that brings with it a whole host of attendant civil liberties concerns because the domestic operating environment is very much different than the foreign environment. Um, and, you know, there's that old saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. And this is, you know, this is, if there's ever a crisis in our lifetimes, this is one. 
So you're going to see a lot of attempts to try and profiteer off this. So how do how do we know where to draw the line? I mean, you know, t uh, six months ago, none of us would have ever accepted, uh, no. you know, a shelter in place in New York or you know, almost globally at this point, right? So how do we? But given given the legitimate pandemic that we're in, I think you know people people are letting it happen. So where do we know where to draw the line? Um, that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I think that once we start seeing. You know, there have to be, you have to look again, I hate to go back to what's already been, um, what's already happened, but you have to go back to South Korea and to China and examine how effective their responses were, particularly South Korea's, which seems to involve a tremendous level of fine-grained um, data analysis on an individual level and see how it worked and see what the problems were and take a long, hard look at that. Um, the problem is that everything is moving so fast right now. I mean, we're moving at breakneck speed, you know, the 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 virus um, doubles. It has an incredibly um, high rate of transmission and mortality among certain populations. And, um, you know, the, the, the previous method, the method that South Korea and Japan used to, um, to crack down on this were widespread testing and mm -hmm. restrictions on movement and restrictions on association. Um, we're kind of getting into number two and number three in certain parts of the U.S., but we're, we're just not going to be able to test on a wide scale because of manifest failings by the current administration. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just, it kind of, it, it 86 that opportunity completely. So in terms of how you push back and how you be careful, um, I just, I think it's really important. And it's difficult because like our normal methods for pushing back on um, measures like this, I mean, the courts are in limbo as well. Um, they are seriously hampered by the current crisis, criminal and civil courts. Um, they're still figuring out how to operate in this environment, how to hold hearings and procedures and so on and not get people infected, which unfortunately has been happening in some of the courthouses. And also from a, social, city. from a social justice angle, I mean, tip, what's the typical strategy with direct action? It's occupying space, occupy Wall Street. Yeah, you know, that can't hands. happen. Yeah, exactly. So what that does this look like? I don't know. I mean, I, that's that's very difficult because now we are, I mean, quite literally atomized. Um, honestly, I think that resistance at this point, if it just looks like, you know, I'm not even looking at a privacy thing, but at, at, from a privacy frame, but you really need to come together with your community, um, keep people stocked for food, keep people stocked for supplies, keep people informed, keep people connected, make certain that information is flowing about um, the government's particular response um, about the efforts of private companies to profiteer off this, to put pressure on legislators. I think that now is actually a time where we're seeing um, Congress be, they're very responsive to concerns and to, um, to information that's broken, um, and especially in the right way. I mean, the reaction of... Um, you know, the, the sensitivity and the reaction to the news that these two senators, at least two senators, uh, basically conducted what looks like insider trading. Um, they dumped mm -hmm. stock after receiving briefings on the sever possible severity of the coronavirus outbreak um, months ago, you know, in January and February. That response, I think that that shows, uh, that to me, the, resp the public response and, and uh, level of outrage demonstrates how... Um, sensitive government is to to that matter. I think that um, 
I mean, it, it, the unfortunate thing is that it's it's going to be a state by state thing at this point because there's no leadership from the federal government. Um, you know, you have some states where there's been very strong leadership, like in New York and um, in California, and in Washington State, and then some states where the governors are going out to restaurants with their families, like in Oklahoma. Um, or keeping St. Patrick's Day alive down to the last moment. Yeah, or you know, allowing or, or Florida, where you know they're. They may have just condemned a ton of elderly folks down there to premature death because they allowed people to congregate on beaches, in clubs, and bars up until the last minute. Well, so when you're looking at China, I mean, one of the challenges they faced as everybody was atomized into their house was the spread of mis- and disinformation. Um, yes, that's a huge because... problem. Yeah, so could you, do you want to speak a little bit about that and what that means? Yeah, I mean, it, unfortunately, we've seen a situation now where... It, you know, social media platforms up until extremely recently have refused to crack down on um, false advertising, on disinformation, on propaganda outlets, um, because it, it basically hurts their bottom line. They, these companies increase their share price by demonstrating user growth. And honestly, if you look at it from a cold, hard financial perspective, who cares if your users are bots or, um, you know, foreign government trying to exert an influence operation over um, a certain population, or if they're, uh, you know, political operatives trying to push a narrative one way or the other. So there has been a lot, there's a lot of bad information that's gotten circulated out there. However, I have seen in my own groups and circles, which is not representative society, but, you know, decent, relatively wide ranging, both coasts, international um, certainly in, throughout New York City and the East Coast, there has been an effort to try and confirm information and um, put out sound, solid advice, statistics, numbers, um, preventative methods, um, advice for you know treating if you're young and healthy, how to treat um, yourself at home if you're told to stay home. Which, frankly, at least three of my friends have contracted this illness and they have not been able to get tested in New York City. They've stayed home and they've had to self-medicate and quarantine, um, but we're not getting advice on how to do that, right? But um, also, I imagine it, as a journalist, your social media timeline is somewhat curated, you know, disproportionately. To, to a degree, people. yeah. To a degree, I mean, you are starting to see um, like there's a lot of quote unquote data scientists and analysts who you've never heard of before, two weeks, a week and a half ago, or also all of a sudden popping up and putting and pumping out advice. Um. And it's just important to to check that, to try and push as a reporter. You know, the jur journalists have a huge responsibility right now to vet information, to make sure it's accurate, to put, to, to put it out in real time, um, to point out overreaches, to point out shortcomings where they're able to do it and, um, you know, make the jobs of medical professionals far easier. Um, I think, for example, a great, a great, uh, embodiment of the problem of disinformation is the uh, use and hoarding of masks, particularly the um, N95 respirators mm -hmm. by private citizens. If you maintain a six foot distance from somebody and wash your hands or wear gloves when you're out, your chance of contracting the virus from people who you are not self-quarantining with um, or living with, are very, it's very low. However, you know, I can't tell you the number of people I saw this past weekend in New York City um, wearing N95 masks. And in the meantime, doctors I know at um, New York City hospitals haven't had 
a new mask. They can't get those new masks, N95s. They're being told to wash their old ones or make their own from bandanas or coffee filters. And I don't know where the information is coming from that an N95 will protect you, that a mask will protect you from getting sick. It won't. But it, if you are sick, it will keep your droplets in. Um, but that is an example of how misinformation or just panic will, and also a lack of um, communication from from government, uh, saying that these are supplies that are needed for medical personnel. If you have them, donate them. Do not use them as a private citizen. You, the best thing you can do is stay indoors. Um, there was also a great piece, though, in the Times about yeah. a lot of the poor messaging by journalists around the mask. That for like the average layperson in the public, that it was a mm. mixed message to hear. Why do these masks work so well and are so important for healthcare professionals, but not for the Absolutely. public? And even though people are told that they're putting it on incorrectly, people generally assume that everyone else is doing it incorrectly and not themselves. And yeah, I think combined absolutely. with that sense of abandonment by the government, people there's just people feel like it's every man for himself. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're I think you're 100 percent right about that. And part of the feeling is that um, medical professionals weren't spoken to early enough in the process and said, look, this is what we need. This is how these supplies help us. This is how you can protect yourself. Um, I think there was a lot of information circulated early on um, that did conflict. And then there is, you know, there's the response that we're starting to see, which is that um, you know, people take cues from other societies. And in other societies, you know, the instinct is to wear a mask. You wear a mask if you're sick, not if you are not sick. You wash your hands. You, this virus lives longer on fabric than it does on skin. And if you wash your hands, if you clean yourself, when you get back into your environment, you don't touch your mucous membranes, your chance of contracting it is, it, it's minimal, you know? And that's something that, this information hasn't gotten passed around. That's why these hospitals are running out of gowns, gloves, masks. And it's why, you know, medical personnel have their own lives. They're not robots. They go out in the world. They have contact with other medical personnel, with their families. Um, and what the, what seems to be coming out of Italy is that the hospitals are major sites of transmission. And if medical personnel are falling sick, then the, the healthcare system is just going to collapse under its own weight. No, for sure. The one thing I wanted to go back to another major, what potentially major site of transmission in New York City that we kind of briefly touched mm -hmm. on is the prisons. Um, yes, prisons and jails, absolutely. Yeah, in part, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of aspects to that. I mean, the fact that the NYPD is insisting on still uh, arresting people for nonviolent felonies and incarcerating them during a pandemic, uh, the conditions in the jails themselves. But do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a you know, we have roughly 50 people in on Rikers Island alone in New York City jails who have contracted um, who have contracted the coronavirus. And uh, the problem there is that the you know inmates have not that what they've been reporting in the city jails um, and to a certain extent upstate. But there's been less information about what's happening in the New York State prison system, which I'll come to later, is that their cells have not been clean. They don't have soap. They don't have hand sanitizer. Um, people haven't been moved around or isolated who are coughing or showing symptoms. The irony of this is that Rikers is actually less crowded than it ever used to be. There's space on the island to move people around to isolate folks. Uh, I'm not really clear why that's not happening. Um, DOC, um, the Department, City Department of Corrections, also didn't issue, didn't stock enough um, supplies for their own staff. Um, people are being, staffers are being told to go back to work. Um, if they're showing symptoms, that's been a huge problem. Um, 
and you know the chief medical doctor for Rikers came out earlier this mm-hmm. week and said, Mayor, you know you have to start releasing individuals from the jails. You can't have this level of population here. You, if you keep people in here, there will be a wave of infections and deaths in here. And um, you know that's that the city's moving very slowly on that. The state's moving very slowly on with regard to the state prison system. Um, you know, I believe up until a week and a half ago, visitors were still allowed. They just needed to be screened for COVID-19, which is almost impossible to do given the, the behavior of this virus, given that you can't, you can carry it for up to two weeks and not show symptoms, right? Mm. And by contrast, the California system locked down um, to visitors, I believe in early March, they stopped taking visitors. A guard at Sing Sing, and I want to say a guard at uh, Stafford at another facility, maybe in Nassau County, I'm not certain about that. They've contracted COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one know, CO died from Rikers. One CO, one CO, one investigator um, from the Central Division of the City Department of Corrections, which again handles the city jails, died. Um, mm-hmm. but he was older, he was in his late 50s and had, I believe he had pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that he, you know, should have died or that it, it's not worth discussing. But the, with the state prison systems, there are a lot of individuals upstate who are older, who have been incarcerated for a long time. They're vulnerable. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the state, <laughs> the governor mandated that prisoners uh, manufacture hand sanitizer for use throughout the state um, a couple weeks ago. But unfortunately, the inmates can't use that hand sanitizer because they have a high alcohol content. So what's being done to substitute that? Are they getting extra supplies of soap up there? Um, have staff taken to cleaning cells uh, more frequently? Are they giving inmates the supplies to do that? Um, are they moving individuals around to different wings to try and space folks out and make certain that there's not greater infection? Are they testing staff at a higher frequency? All these are questions that I don't know the answer to. And there hasn't been um, good reporting on that's at least been published. I'm not really clear why. Um, I do know that, for example, in California, the first reporting on the state prison system's plan to respond to the pandemic was in late February by the Los Angeles Times. Um, And California has not yet, as of today, as of this morning, um, you know, 9.30 a.m. West Coast time, 12.30 p.m., um, East Coast time, seen an infection amongst the general population of inmates. I believe there have been a couple staff members who've been infected, or at least one in the California prison system. But you, you know, in New York, in New York City and state, the first reporting we saw on the jail's response was, I believe, last Monday. Um, the city, which is an independent um, newsroom, received they were leaked a copy of the DOC's response for Rikers, their pandemic response plan, which would be inmates sleeping, you know three feet apart, um, still in the same cell, cleaning cells themselves. Um, and it, it was just, the plan was just torn apart by public health professionals that said, this is not safe. This is not sanitary. So, and again, we haven't seen any reporting on what the state prison system's response is. And, um, that's, that's one of the fears is that there is that if this, uh, if this virus gets into the jails, it could rip through it in Italy. Um, and I hate to keep going back to the worst case scenario. Oh, excuse me, Italy and China, um, COVID did spread rapidly through the prison systems. 
And in Italy, there were a couple prison breaks where inmates um, made their way outside of the facilities over lack of visitations and over fear of contracting the virus. So that's something that I think everybody wants to avoid. And I, I think that, you know, if there's a plan to release individuals from custody, um, I think it's moving and for their own well-being and for societal well-being, I think it's moving very slowly in New York State. Yeah, I mean, in Sao Paulo, hundreds of prisoners, I think about five days ago, escaped from four different prisons That's in right. Sao Paulo. And then in Iran, I mean, they've released 85,000 prisoners and have planned... They had a lot of political prisoners to release too, though. 10,000, That's something keeping yeah. in mind. Yeah, that's something keep, worth keeping in mind is that Iran had a huge number of people in there for no other reason but their politics. We have... And this, that may be a, you know, there may be some people who in the New York system who are, but um, by and large, that's not the case. There are a lot of people in there for, um, especially the jails, for relatively low level violations. Um, does it seem, is there a world in which you can imagine us like en masse at the scale of Iran releasing prisoners? I mean, it seems completely unimaginable, but given that... On a national level, I think on a national level, the numbers might even up to it. Um, It depends. I mean, I I think that in different localities, you know, sheriffs, um, specifically out west, they've responded by saying, look, we're we're not going to take people for certain offenses. Um, We're going to really work to try and ease back on that. There's been an attempt... um, you know, in 2012, something called realignment started in California, where they started to hold people for more serious offenses, for less serious offenses in county jails rather than in state prisons to recruit, reduce crowding in there, um, and then do more supervised release for people um, who might be held in jails for misdemeanor crimes or low-level felonies. But, um, you know, that move to kind of decrease the carceral population out west is a little bit... is is relatively far along in New York state in New York city, it's worse work to a degree, you know, it's again, city jails are less crowded. Um, and there is the effort to close Rikers, but we don't, you know, there's still a tremendous number of people inside right now. And I don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah. And I mean, part of the, the raise the age law has meant that the New York city administration of children's services is running detention centers with now 16, 17, 18 year olds. And I know people have called for many of them to be reunited with their families, right. but as of now that has not happened. Right. And that is, um, you know, I can, unfortunately I can see because those populations are not deemed high risk for infection. Um, or they're not like in the top, I think there are five tiers of infection that were categorized by CDC or other health officials in different countries. And people, um, young folks, especially um, teenagers or 20-year-olds without pre-existing conditions, don't fall in there. That being said, um, we do know that uh, young people who grow up in New York City, especially in certain neighborhoods where they're close to freeways or industrial sites, are at higher risk for contracting asthma. And that you know, respiratory ailments are what put you in the crosshairs of this ailment. So... I, I think that there really needs to be a, a strong effort to um, screen individuals who could be eligible for um, for release, for community release, to get as many people out as possible, um, and also to make sure that when they get released, they, you know, it's really important to make certain if people have been exposed to COVID that they are quarantined. And that's one thing, again, with 
the prison with the jails is that it makes it so alarming that you can transmit to other inmates, you can transmit to other staff. The staff can transmit to people at home. If you release people from jail who've been exposed to this, then you're also running the risk of spreading it out to the community. So it's yeah, the response, and and these are people who cannot socially distance. That's just not it's not how jail or prison works. Uh, it's not how the build environment looks like. So you need there needs to be a tremendous effort to try and keep those people um, healthy and to track and isolate um, any outbreaks of this disease inside uh, carceral institutions. That Which, being said, I feel like they're the lowest priority, unfortunately. That Which is a horrible thing to think about. Carceral populations are the lowest priority? I feel like carceral populations are low down on the list of priority. I'm, I'm just reading, I don't, that's not my personal opinion, but mm-hmm. I think that the state's response, um, frankly, uh, the response of a lot of the media in the New York area until this thing hit on Rikers, you know, it really took, again, it took an, I, that's why I pointed out the fact that it was an independent newsroom that got that, that got that information. They were fighting to get that and fighting to get it in print. Um, but no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even talking, I mean, part of the problem is with immunocompromised people and who's in these at-risk groups is that a lot of disabilities are not visible. Um, yes. A disproportionate amount of children who are in foster care under the custody of the New York City ACS in these detention centers have disabilities, many of yes. which are not visible. You know, it could take the form of being, you know, having type 1 diabetes or, um, you know, other underlying respiratory conditions like asthma. Um, and then just our society as, and as Americans with all these food deserts and morbid obesity, people with metabolic disorders associated with these diets um, mm-hmm. are also at risk population. So, I, yes. I think, and yeah, go ahead. Public health is, um, you know, there is a big role in, uh, you know, diet maintains a huge, um, place in determining your susceptibility for, for illness. And I think that there also needs to be, you know, some of the advice I've heard from other countries from Australia and New Zealand has been, um, you need to up your intake of fruits and vegetables. You need to drink water. You need to drink tea. You need to keep, you know, you need to keep hydrated. You need to keep your body functioning, um, properly at this point in time and access to that um, that sort of food and access to proper nutrition advice is really hard to come by right now. Um, and also a lot of these communities, you know, what, what happens when, when the money runs out, how are they going to get proper, how are they going to get food? How are they going to be able to get produce? How are they going to be able to get, um, medicine? How are they going to be able to feed themselves, uh, in the current situation where people are losing jobs, you know, in droves and they're losing their income in droves. Um, these are all, and this, this is very far afield from criminal justice, um, but I guess it's all—it's about equity and social um, social stratification, and that is something that um, you know I've been taking personally a lot of care to to really eat properly. Um, I don't smoke, but this smoking is a vector, um, just by the behavior. You know, you're touching your mouth all the time. Um, you're scalding your upper respiratory system, upper, upper respiratory tract. Um, you're exposing yourself to, um, which weakens your system's ability to fight off any um, external pathogen. So, um, you know, some of the behavior that I saw this past week, you know, people are gathering in groups, um, sharing cigarettes, sharing marijuana, sharing hookah. And, um, you know, these are, that's what I saw when I was riding through a lot of lower income neighborhoods outside. And it's, I don't think the information's getting out there. I really don't. 
Um, you know, we're almost at the hour mark. So I guess, you know, it's kind of in conclusion. One of the things I wanted to ask you is that sure. we're so much in the acute moment that I don't, I mean, at least for me personally, I don't, I don't see when and how this is going to end. Um, but there does feel like there's a little bit of a before Corona, after Corona demarcation. So whenever Certainly. it is at the end of this calendar year, you know, early 2021, when we're phasing back as a society into less social distancing and whatever the new normal will look like. Could you talk a little bit about what you kind of imagine this after Corona world to look like? That is one of the hardest things to, to imagine out. It's certainly something that I've given a lot of uh, thought to. Um, a couple friends and I have been batting around um, a term that the uh, science fiction author, um, one of the greats of our time, William Gibson, introduced in a couple of his last books, which is something called, quote, the jackpot. Um, which is an undetermined event, either climate change, a pandemic, nuclear war, or something like that, that changes the face of society forever. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly feels like phase one of it. Uh, I think that there, you know, the level of control and of social management by government could, that in one future is that could really ramp up to an astonishing degree. The other degree is that the other um, converse of that is, um, you know, there could be a lot more um, community building and networking and, um, and public safety and health methods and precautions that communities take on their own um, or take together. That could be another way of dealing with this. There are also, you know, there's broad, this is going to reshape the economy in ways that none of us can foresee. So, you know, who knows what will happen to, to gig work, for example, and gig work does, has created a number of companies that have a tremendous amount of control over, um, individual workers who, um, over users that they have been able to hoover up a tremendous amount of data on, uh, on individual user, users and their habits, patterns, lifestyles, so forth. Those could grow. Those companies could grow exponentially or they could disappear. Um, for example, no one's right there. How many people are riding Uber right now? You know, mm-hmm. not many, but how many people are using Grubhub or Seamless to order food? Quite a few. Um, you could see, you are now seeing, uh, proposals getting floated out there for, you know, payments to Americans, um, you know, welfare payments or not welfare payments, excuse me, um, cash payments to kind of stave off the economic, um, damage that this virus has done along the lines of the universal basic income that uh, people like Andrew Yang were proposing. So that could get instituted. There are calls to that could get instituted maybe for who knows how long, depending on how long, how far out this ripples, there could be a way to, you know, there's a growing call to unify the medical system in the U S for the state to take over or subsidize hospitals indefinitely to stave off fear of closure. Um, We could see a, big rewriting of our um our medical system and what about a, the, overall the... that that could happen very well in terms of criminal justice there might be you know there's the possibility that you know this might really reshape how we think about prisons and jails as ways of punishing people or you know confining them that being said, the converse of reducing jail population is an increase in external surveillance and tracking of people on home release. So, and then we get into the question about data, privacy, um, 
our reliance on the internet, for example, has, I mean, if the internet goes down, society's, society's fucked. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty, you know, universally acceptable, um, prognosis because we really depend on it right now to be, to maintain our network, to maintain communications, to order food, to, to stay sane. Um, sure. and I think that the use, the internet as a private utility could, that's something that could get reimagined completely. Um, because at this point we realize, we're starting to realize that it is national infrastructure that we need. Same thing with telecoms, for example. Um, but go ahead. I'm sorry. You cut me off. I cut you off in the middle of, uh, middle of your question. My apologies. No, okay. Those were good points. I mean, actually, the point about internet, one of the things, there was a really good piece in the Times about the Crown Heights Hasidic neighborhoods, and part of their resistance was that they were saying, look, uh, <clears throat> this particular uh, strains of Orthodox Judaism that are being practiced in those neighborhoods, people don't have, uh, people are not giving their kids TV, you know, the houses are not, are not set up for people to spend a lot of time in the house. Everything is communal. Everything is about going outside. So it's not like they're just plopping their kids in front of Netflix. And so the idea of this right. being possible without internet is kind of amazing. Yes. I mean, that, that, um, you know, that community has other issues too, in terms of disregarding, um, that, that community is very insular, um, tends to disregard modern science. Um, some parts of it tend to disregard modern science and push out their own false information. That's another Separate I mean, there's a differentiated that's... groups within there. I mean, there were yes. within that community who were very oh yeah, who were very upset about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certain certain rebbe's, certain congregations have have pushed back on that. But yeah, I mean, their their way of of life and and um, organizing is is going to be very different, especially because they're one of the groups most acutely impacted. There too, um, I believe, as of late last week, there were two huge clusters in Williamsburg and I think Borough Park as well in mm-hmm. the Hasidic community, um, which is just devastating to think about, um, really tragic. But again, it will force a rethink, it, hopefully it forces a rethinking of how um, the build environment of how people interact, of how valuable, proper, accurate medical information is, and maybe some rethinking from the people who have been outliers to date, um, who were holding these large-scale weddings um, and gatherings as of earlier this week, as of Tuesday. Um, I mean, I I think that, you know, we have seen religion, for example, is reshaping itself. Um, Catholics are no longer going to Mass. Um, You know, they're being told you can worship from home. Um, The Pope has stopped holding his gatherings in St. Peter's Square. And then, um, you know, there has been a big recognition, I think, in the religious community that a lot of Unfortunately, you know, you'd have to rethink contact like this during a period of such severity. Um, we have seen, you know, churches in Queens, South Korea as major centers of outbreak. Um, religious pilgrimages in Iran, um, for example, were a big, you know, sites of religion in Iran were a big point of transmission. So it's just, it's, it could lead to a lot of atomization. It could lead to reorganization in different manners. Um, but I was and also going to ask also, you specifically about yeah. the media, to be an independent oh, yes. journalist in this time. You know, is there a way in which that has – there's a way that a lot of us uh, have worked from home, and, and so that still yes. feels possible, obviously. But what are the ways that that's changing for you or that you anticipate kind of the field changing in this moment? Um, there's a couple of things. One, the expertise of medical – of health reporters is um, going to be paramount. Um, two, there is um, – 
there's something that's going to happen with freedom of information requests in the short term. Governments will process them at extended, at, you know, far longer timelines than they used to or are legal. Um, that's something that could flow, choke out the flow of information. Three, I think it's more important than ever that reporters seek out sources however they're able to communicate through securely through whatever means they can because now we're kind of isolated we're technology dependent um for i do think that you know for independence or for people who don't focus on this um this pandemic or who, do, who don't focus on health in some ways it's kind of put the normal workings of business on hold um for the short term because everyone is so geared towards um towards they're, they're, you know, coverage is pivoting entirely towards this environment. And there are some pieces uh, about unrelated things that do get through right now, but the, it's, you know, it's very difficult to get a green light on anything new that hasn't already been assigned that's non-pandemic associated, um, which makes sense. But I do also think that there's going to be, there could potentially could be, there's two things that could happen. There could either be a boom in media, which is starting to happen in terms of page views are up, subscriptions appear to be up for some sites. Um, that's great. These companies haven't exactly been, a lot of media companies have consolidated. The freelance rates have gone down over the past 15 years that I've been in the business pretty precipitously. And um, the number of journalists has also decreased drastically as well. Um, so the page views are going up, but then again, um, the and subscriptions are going up for the places that still exist. But there's also the converse of advertising just falling off a cliff because the broader economy is starting to suffer. Um so you're going to see more emphasis on nonprofit newsrooms, on newsrooms that depend on donations. Um, that being said, um, there's also a possibility that there could be a really strat- real stratification of information where the wealthy who have you know paid for their own tests fled to different um, far-flung corners of the world uh, from major urban metropoles and you know, in all likelihood taken this, uh, this virus with them to wherever they travel to very selfishly. Um, they will continue paying for publications like the financial times, like the New York times, like the Washington post, like the wall street journal, um, and receive high quality information while everybody else is stuck in the morass of social media and picking back through, you know, what clickbait, um, factory, what, you know, clickbait farms are, are putting out. Um, mm. and, you know, I think now more than ever, there's a necessity for, you know, now I think people are starting to appreciate the media. We'll see what happens when this, um, when this pandemic starts really hitting the red states, um, mm-hmm. and starts hitting the areas of the con- starts you know, moving outside of the major metropoles in the U S which is where it's been to date. But, um, you know, there's been a huge, uh, chasm between who's taking this seriously and who's not and what their information environment looks like. Um, and the, uh, and Donald Trump's unfortunately propagated this, um, this dynamic because he can't, you know, he's incapable of understanding or admitting that this is, you know, that he had, that he's incapable of admitting his manifest failures, incompetence, decisions over the past few years to gut the, uh, the government's ability to prepare for this, um, eventuality and, um, to try and blame his predecessor, when his predecessor actually did um, a decent job in 2009 heading off um, another um, potential coronavirus outbreak through really intensive testing and, and monitoring that did not um, did not get anywhere close to violating um, people's civil liberties and rights and 
the ways that you are potentially staring down the barrel of now. So the information environment is going to be critical. And um, I think that they're, you know, it's amazing to see that in this point in time, at the same time when, you know, the presidential briefing will come on or his interviews are getting put around, quite a few people, I know, you know, reporters, people who value high quality information are instead, you know, tweeting out links to the WHO briefings, Mm -hmm. the World Health Organization briefings, which are informative, which are um, more comprehensive, which do offer sound scientific advice and aren't this insane, um, you know, carnival, this, you know, demented carnival of um, blame, of, of denial, of you know, contradictions, just, it's really, you know, and I would advise, you know, some governors have been very good about that too. So I would advise people to try and push out solid quality information wherever they can to people they know, um, just to keep. No, but demented carnival is a good phrase. I think that, that, that kind of captures effectively for me (laughs) what a lot of our sense of governance federally is looking like. I mean, Um, I've, I've, I've tried to laugh at it, um, but it's, it's so criminal to this degree. I mean, you have the a senator who's the wife of the New York Stock Exchange president dumping stock and then going on, dunk, dumping stock after she receives her briefing, then going out publicly and saying Donald Trump's response is appropriate. There's media over this media hype and misinformation circulating. And her husband dumped stock as well. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that these people are not in cuffs, the fact that these people are walking around in public is just, it, it's, it, you know, if there aren't consequences and there aren't um, reactions and there aren't um, serious changes, I think that there that undermines the legitimacy of government. And when that happens, there's, you know, I, so I've spent a lot of time over the past two, two and a half years reporting on the extreme right, um, mm-hmm. particularly groups, uh, accelerationist groups like the Adam Waffen Division and Sonic Creek Division that have been involved in um, that, you know, are the very high priority for the federal uh, Bureau of investigation and department of justice. Now they weren't, but they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching how that ideology is spread. These people were chattering about COVID months ago in January and they're pushing it saying, this is it. This is our moment. This is how we push society to collapse. If government allows itself to be delegitimized and, you know, all the, um, the conspiracy, then all of these conspiracy theorists and um, and radicals who are really pushing this end of end of times, break down civilization, create a white ethno you know white ethno state where those who are genetically pure or resilient will survive all this. It it feeds into their ideology, it really does, and there have to be consequences for the people that allowed this to happen. Yeah, because well, it I mean, was it feels to like we're actively, the government is actively being delegitimized, as you have Dr. Fauci uh, having to correct the president's repeated tweets about combining azithromycin and uh, right. hydrochloroquine. I don't, I don't know actually how you pronounce that, but <laughs> medications after physicians have repeatedly said this is not something safe to take without monitoring by a physician and it's experimental. And he continues to repeatedly tweet it. Um, the government does. I mean, I just feel like the fact that Disney, the Broadway, that these private um, sector industries are having to independently decide to close, you know, yes. and that things are ha- things have been phased out so ad hoc. Um, yes. 
that, you know, for prisoners, for black women, I think a lot of people have long felt abandoned by the government. But I think for broader swaths of society, I mean, I think this has really been a wake up call. Um, yeah, it's certainly um, it's certainly a paradigm shift. I concur with what you're saying and that, you know, there's what starts on you know, a, a great rule for looking at um, extreme measures, for looking at surveillance, for looking at criminal justice. This is a, basically a, a kind of operating uh, guideline I've had is that you look at what happens to marginalized populations, mm-hmm. undocumented gang members, sex workers, people who are not deemed in the mainstream of society. And what happens to them first? It's the rest of us are at risk of what happens to them first will happen to the rest of us in time because the natural inclination of a carceral state, of a surveillance state, of surveillance in general, is to metastasize. And every bit of scholarship you'll read about about surveillance, just on, you know, medical sense, law enforcement sense, commercial sense, it is to grow. There is no natural check. There is no limit. It will grow until it is all-encompassing, all and then it will try and find another way out there. So society, um, individual effort, community organizing, that is the check, that is the, the boundaries that are put on this ability to know, on this ability to gather information about people, to restrict, um, to control. And right now we're at a point where the uh, the instinct is towards control, is towards extreme control. Um, and there are very good reasons for that, but there's also ways this can be done that are helpful, that are relatively benign and there are ways that this can be done that um can be awful i don't know i just don't know other ways to put it you know this is a moment no, absolutely. Where i think I we're think... all we're all learning we're all learning new vocabularies no absolutely i think what you said about listening to the undocumented and to, uh, to marginalized people is really important it just reminded me of um philip alston the special rapporteur from the un when he wrote his report on uh inequity and justice in, in mm-hmm. the United States in 2018 and looking at predictive algorithms for housing in LA. And um, that's right. He, he was talking about how uh, the people of low socioeconomic status who are unhoused and who are reliant on, you know, human resources to, uh, sorry, human services for welfare benefits, et cetera, are a testing ground and to pay close attention because this will be Certainly. to scale to larger society. Um, but as we're at an hour and 11 minutes, I do have to finish up. And before, <laughs> of course, before I let of you course. go, though, I would like, yes. um, I try to ask everybody, you know, what are you watching? What are you reading? Is there anything? I know you mentioned Jackpot, which actually Ingrid Burrington, who I interviewed yesterday, had recommended yeah, to. Yeah, she's great. Um, yeah, she's yeah. phenomenal. Um, That's, is there anything um, you'd like to recommend? Uh, in terms of fiction, because uh, I'll start with, with fiction, I try to get away from the stuff as much as possible if I can. Um, you know, I've been reading a bunch of detective novels. I've been going back over, um, some Chandler. William Gibson is great, um, for, for little bits and pieces of it. But, you know, I've been reading a good bit of stuff like John Lanchester's The Wall. Um, my friend James Quilly wrote a detective novel about Newark called Line of Sight. It's a little bit of escapism. Um, for the jackpot, for William Gibson's books, uh, The Peripheral and Agency are worth reading. Um, that's where he introduces that concept. His entire catalog is worth really diving into. There's a lot of really good science fiction. Cyberpunk was coined out of that. In terms of news, um, I'm paying close attention to um, to The Guardian, The New York Times, um, to a degree. The Financial Times has actually had a tremendous amount of high-quality information, um, especially about the behavior of the economy. Um, I think that 
the European services are really important to watch. Local news outlets throughout the world, uh, New York City, Gothamist, The Daily News, The New York Post, um, have all been tearing up trees, and that's where really where their roots in the community are starting to show. Um, the city's also done good work as well. They're a relatively new outlet. Um, I think in California, the Pacifica Network, KPF, KPFA in the Bay Area, is, is a absolute absolute gem. The East Bay Times and the LA Times out there are doing excellent work, and there are important ways to track the spread of this um, this pandemic on the West Coast. I think that getting information from your community and your governor and your local officials, um, tracking what they do and what they say is really critical. I think a lot of the stuff on the national level, unfortunately, is, and it, I hate to say this, but it sounds like noise. Mm. You know, it's not high quality information. What we've been getting from the governor in New York State, forget the mayor, he's useless. What we've been getting from the governor in New York State is much higher quality information. The same thing in California with their governor. Um, same thing in Washington state, their governor has been quite good. So local media outlets really help. Um, and they need the support right now more than ever. Um, and in terms of nonfiction books, I mean, I've just been delving into some history stuff, some longer scale, broader societal history, not pandemic, not illness related, but (laughs) you know, getting into the bigger picture of humanity at this point is really important. Um, as a species we live through, we've lived through many pandemics, but not in modern, um, modern history or, mo- or current memory. So that's, you know, we ha- it's important to keep in mind that we have the more technology, more knowledge than ever before um, to tackle this, and that it's all about how we implement it. Um, and it doesn't have to be a dystopian outcome. It can we can do this in an appropriate, um, effective way. It's going to be painful, but we have to do it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Not a problem, Khadija. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time out to speak with me.